Good morning. My name is Aubrey. If we haven't met, I do hope to get to meet you. It, many people today wonder, does God exist? I'm sure that some of you have um, thought that yourself, or you've got friends or family who are not convinced that there is a God. That's a fairly new question. Um, atheism of that kind is, is a fairly new phenomenon. For most of history, for most of time, that's not been a question that really weighed on people. The most common question about God has been, who is God? The most common question has been, when you use that word, of the gods, which one are you talking about? Which God is truly God? Now, if you were talking to someone and they said something about God, um, I think that because we've gotten into this moment of time, we've stopped asking that question the more common one, which I think is the more important question. Exactly who is God? Who is this God that you're talking about? You look like me. You live in the same culture I live in. We're both using a lot of words, and we keep using the same word together, but who exactly is the God that you're talking about? This morning, our scripture passages from Isaiah 6 and John chapter 3 and Romans chapter 8, these passages of scripture are three of the kind of key passages that answer that question for Christians. They help us see exactly which God of the gods are we talking about when we use the word God. They help us see what do we mean by this word? And who exactly is this particular God? Take Isaiah 6, for example. The passage um, that was read just a little bit earlier. There's this phrase in it. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, if you follow in your Bible, that word Lord is written differently than the other words around it. It's written in small caps. And that's a way of saying that it's not just using the word Lord generically. For example, the way Eric does when he refers to me, my Lord. <laughs> joking, really joking. He doesn't refer to me with that word. It's a way of saying that this is actually in Hebrew, the name, the particular name of the particular God that we worship, the Lord of hosts. And then it says, the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is filled with the glory of our particular God. Our particular God fills the world with his glory. The God that Christians worship is holy, and he fills the earth with his glory. Our God is not some local tribal deity. He's not one among many. He is the God. He is the great God. 
He is so much greater than all the other gods that the word God really can't apply to both. Have you ever read in the Bible and it talks about sometimes it says gods and then sometimes it says there's only one God? Why is that language like that? It's because we use the word God to describe a certain kind of being. But our God is so far above all other gods that he explodes the categories. This God that Christians worship, he is not a God of white people. He's not a European God. He is the God of all peoples, all ethnic groups, all tribes, all languages, all cultures. He is the one and only worldwide creator of all things. That's the God Christians worship. Now, when we jump forward to our gospel reading, to John chapter 3, we see that this worldwide God, who's unique, who's different from all the other gods, we see that he is described, he's identified as Father, Son, and Spirit. In John chapter 3, verse 6, we're told, you must be born of the Spirit to enter God's kingdom. Then in verses 15 and 16, we're told you must believe in the Son that was sent by the Father in order to receive eternal life. And we find the same nature of God described in our Romans passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 16, where it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Now, this is foundational to Christianity. We've got to return to the moment where we begin to ask the question, which God? When you use that word, who are you talking about? And at the heart of the Christian answer is this. I'm talking about the God who is the Trinity. One being who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not three gods. That's polytheism. Christianity is staunchly monotheistic. There is only one God. And God is not one God who at various times slips into these different modes of being. He is eternally the triune God. Now, there's mystery here, right? This is, for some of you, it sounds like I'm talking algebra, right? And for others of you, it sounds like I'm talking English literature, like just whichever camp you fall in that finds mystery in the other one. We're brushing up against ultimate reality when we talk about the Trinity. God is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all three mutually permeate the other so completely that one is always in the other two. There's a, now, look, this is notoriously hard to fathom. But the early church came up with a word. They invented a word that I think is one of the best ways to try to understand the Trinity. Now, the word, get ready for it because it's pretty weird. It's pretty old. It's another language. It's in Greek. It goes all the way back to the fourth century. And the word is perichoresis. Perichoresis. Now, like I said, this is a weird word. We don't use it anymore, but it's made up of two words we do use. It's made up of first the word peri, which means around, 
So think periscope, right? Uh, a scope that can turn all the, <laughs> however you do that, it can turn around. And the second word is choresis. Think of choreography. It, it's the word that means to dance. So this word perichoresis, it's getting at the inner life of God. That the inner life of God is characterized by love. When you love someone, you enter into a dynamic orbit around that person. To love someone is, is to learn to identify their interest, their desires. And when two people are doing this with each other, it creates a dance. That's the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each moving around the other, each centering upon the other and entering into the other. And none demands that the other revolves around him. Each voluntarily circles the others, pouring love and delight and adoration into them. And that creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy. Isn't that beautiful? Aren't, isn't that an amazing way as they're grappling with God, the Trinity, that when they look deeply into it, it they turn to metaphors of dance. That, that at the heart, at the essence of God, the early church leaders called this perichoresis. One of my favorite ways to translate that word, divine dance. Who is this God you're talking of? He is the God that in his inner life, is love and dance, a divine dance. He is perichoretic. He is his father, son, and spirit constantly moving around the other, drawing on the other's love and giving out joy and delight, constantly orbiting in love, each centering on the glory of the other. None demands that the other revolve around him, each voluntarily circling the other, pouring out love and delight and adoration. This is why in your, on the front of your worship, guide, most of the depictions of the Trinity, they're, they're kind of wrapped up in this kind of interactive unity, this interdependence, this interpenetration, this mutual dependence. This is the Trinity, the divine dance. And it recognizes that there's both profound individuality at the same time as profound unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all bound up with each other so that one is not one without the other two. In other words, God is not God apart from the way in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit give to and receive from each other what they essentially are. Now, obviously, this can be perplexing. It overloads our mental circuits. But this, this astonishing, dynamic conception of the triune God is just bristling with profound, life-shaping, wonderful, world-changing implications. And I'm going to talk about three. I'm going to talk a little bit about what the Trinity shows us about the essence of God. Second, what the Trinity shows us about the essence of humans. And third, what the Trinity shows us about religion. Specifically, the relationship of Christianity to other religions.
So first of all, let's start with God. What does the Trinity show us about the God we worship? It shows us that God is fundamentally, essentially love. And this is different from every other world, major world religion. Look at it this way. By nature, love is relational. Love is interactive. Love is interpersonal. You have to have more than one to have love. Love only exists in the action of giving and receiving. It's something one person has for another. A solitary being cannot love. Love has to have an object. Now, this is the source of the major difference between, for example, Christianity and Islam. Nowhere in Islam's literature does it ever say God is love. It cannot say that. Only a God who is triune can be in his essence love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, the Bible says God is love. This is the inner life of God himself. It's love. It's just right to the very core of his being. And since this is his essence, this is a primary way he relates to his creation. Before time and space and matter existed, God loved. And God called all of the universe into existence out of his love. God did not create the world because he had a hunger that needed to be filled. God doesn't need more dancers. He created us to share in the joy of the dance between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Think about all of these graduation parties that have been going on this weekend. Think about a wedding. Why, when people have a wedding, do they invite all of these family and friends and spend all of this money to host them at a party? Why? Because you are inviting others to share in your joy. The joy that pre-existed that moment. The joy you're inviting others to come into the love and into the joy that is existing there. That's creation. God didn't create all things because he needed something. He created all things because it was the overflow of his love and he's inviting all of us into it. This is why the Apostle Paul, in the middle of one of his most mind-boggling, intricate, hard-to-follow theological arguments, in the middle of one of those arguments, he stops and he writes this joyful exclamation. The Son of God loved me. And gave himself for me. This is the essence of God. And this, this is what the Trinity produces. This is what it means to say we worship the God who is triune. It means we worship the God who is love at the essence of his being. Not power. Not existence. Love. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity is the reason. That Christianity gives love primacy. Now this leads us to the next amazing world-changing insight. Implication. The Trinity shows us something not only wonderful about God. 
It shows us something about us, something about our essence. It shows us that we were created in and for relationships. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God, it says, quote, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Created in God's image. Who is God? He is the triune God. To be humans is to be created in, by, and for community. And since being created in God's image means we're created for community, when you are tempted to burn down community, to to stop existing in community, when you're tempted to move away and to crawl into the cave of your own heart, into your own solitary existence. Isn't this one of the evils that's coming out of the terrible, awful gun violence in our culture? Notice how it's tearing people down into solitary existences. When we feel that, And I'm not talking about the need for alone time. I'm not talking about the genuine and authentic need to get still and quiet and alone. I'm talking about when these desires for real isolation begin to work in our life. These desires to free ourselves from other people. This is a movement away from what it means to be truly human. And for some, this temptation plays out when you begin to stay around people, but you begin to treat people as an ends to your own means. They exist to advance your agenda. When we open our hearts to Christ, when we receive the gift of the Spirit of God, part of what happens is that the Spirit begins to provoke us and to empower us to break through boundaries. Over and over in Paul's letters, he's moving around Asia Minor. He's moving around and and he's noticing that people are eating meals together who never could before. And it's not just some kind of ooey-gooey, like peace-love kind of movement. There's a real thing that's happening. There is, when we come to the God of of the Bible. There is a strange new power to cross boundaries. First of all, the boundary between us and God. L- listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 3, verse 5. Truly, this was our gospel reading. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Paul says in our New Testament, our epistle reading, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the gift of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In both of these passages, we see that the Spirit opens us up to God, and it leads us into an intimate relationship, a personal relationship with God. A second boundary that the Spirit gives us the power to cross is the boundary between us and others. 
One of the strange, surprising works of the Spirit is that God empowers us to enter into previously impossible relationships. And as we do this, as we open ourselves up to the Spirit, to God's Spirit at work within us, we can learn to treat others with respect and to resist all forms of tribalism, to overcome these barriers, not using each other to fulfill our own ends. Look, look how the Trinity teaches us to love each other. The Trinity shows me that love in me identifies and serves your interest. Remember the Trinity in terms of perichoresis, this dynamic orbiting around one another, this centering on the interest and the needs of the other. That's love. So in loving you, I make your interest my own. I ask the question, what do you mean? I want to know what you mean. I want to know your desires. I want to know your interest. I want to know you. In loving you, I make your interests the basis of our relationship. Have you ever talked with someone who gets distracted as soon as this topic shifts from their interest and their plan and their agenda? Have you ever been around these people? They're engaged in the conversation as long as they're interested in it. But the moment it shifts away from their interest, their phone is out or they're starting side conversations to return it back. But Trinitarian love, it leads me out of myself. It's the divine dance. This kind of love, this love we see in the Trinity and that the Spirit of God puts in us this kind of love is the end of deception. Because why is there any need for deception that protects myself if you love me? And if you welcome me, there is no more suspicion because there's no more manipulation. Love does not manipulate. It doesn't use people. So if you and I give in to the fear of pain and suffering and vulnerability, and we let it drive us away from intimacy with others, we will dash ourselves on the rocks of ultimate reality. Because when we do this, we are trying to live against the grain of the universe. We're trying to live in an unnatural way. We are living in a way that can't possibly work. We will not find happiness on that path. C.S. Lewis said, look, there are only two places free from the pain of suffering in relationships. Heaven and hell. And the reason hell is, is because you get what you asked for. You get it your way, your own way, without anybody else. This world was not created by a solitary, singular, isolated, higher power. It was created by the triune God, who is essentially love. And so you and I were made by and in the image of a self-giving God. And we are made for self-giving, other-directed love. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of who God made you to be. There's one thing. So that's one thing we learn about ourselves. What it means to be human from the nature of God, from the Trinity. We learn that God is love and that God made us for community. And every one of us has resistance to community. Introverts have a certain kind of resistance, right? 
Trauma creates certain kinds of resistances. Arrogance creates certain kinds of resistances. Right? There's all these ways that we can resist this. Now, one last thing. What does the Trinity help us to see about other religions? First of all, go, just take a step back for a minute. We need to recognize that the Trinity is the basis for recognizing God values difference. Just like the Father and the Son and the Spirit are distinct, yet one, God created a world that is filled with distinction. Now look, our stained glass artist saw this in the creation account, and he captures it. So right, we have day one of creation on the far left, and then day two on the far right, and then day three is in the middle, and day four is... Now notice how it gets increasingly complex. Notice how it goes from simple to complex. Day, day five is over there on the side. And look at day six, the most complex of all. That is a deep insight into the creation account. That God is developing this world into more and more differentiation. Distinctness. God values that. You look at a thing a creator makes and you can see the creator's values. So when we look at this world, this universe, that we are still discovering things that we didn't even know existed before, unique things, this creation filled with different species and personalities, <laughs> and some of us all in one body, right? Sting has this great song about his lover. She can be all four seasons in one day, <laughs> right? She can be cold, she can be warm, and he does all this, right? This, this amazing range that each of us have and that all of us have, that no two trees have ever existed that are exactly alike. Where did that come from? It came from the Trinity. The Trinity is the enemy of sameness. The Trinity is the enemy of homogeneity. And when we look at other religions, now look how this sets us up to begin to think truly Christianly about other religions. And notice that when it comes to other religions and we're trying to think about them or relate to them, there are two big traps we can fall into. On the one hand, if all we see is difference, Islam is different, Hinduism is different, Buddhism is different, secularism, a religion that likes to claim it's not a religion, which is like the trump card, right? Um, that lets secularism gets away with all kinds of um, power moves and it continues to ravage people. When all we see is difference between us and America, between the church and the secular government, when all you see is difference, it results in division and exclusion. On the other hand, if we look at Hinduism or Islam or Judaism or Buddhism and, and we only see what we have in common and we only want to talk about how all roads lead to the same place, that's like saying all women are the same. It's an insult. Why is it an insult? Because it distorts your uniqueness. Because it cuts off the, the distinctions in you. Only arrogant people say all white men are the same. Only arrogant people say all women are the same. Only arrogance can say all religions are the same. 
Because it's a way of denying the... Because look, at the heart of Christianity is the Trinity who values these distinctions. Now, the problem with this popular idea that all religions are the same is that no, they're not. Yes, they are in some ways, like all men are the same in some ways, but in other ways, they're not all the same. There are undeniable differences and there are undeniable similarities. And only when we see that will we be able to truly see others, other religions. This is one way that God as Trinity teaches me how to interact with the other religions. Listen to how Michael Green ties this together. He was a longtime pastor in Oxford, England. Listen to how he explains what I'm trying to say here. He says, no faith, no religion will last if it doesn't contain truth. It it just can't. If an engine doesn't work, it's not going to keep driving. If a religion doesn't work, it's not going to last very long. If it doesn't contain truth, it won't last. But the other religions are a preparation for the gospel. And Christ comes not so much to destroy the other religions... He comes to fulfill them. A convert from another religion to Christianity, Michael Green says, will not feel that he's lost his background. He will instead discover that to which at its best his religion always pointed. This, Michael Green says, is, quote, certainly the attitude I found among my friends who converted from, to Christ from Hinduism, from Islam, from Buddhism. They were profoundly grateful for the religion they were raised in. They were profoundly grateful for what they learned in those cultures. But they were thrilled beyond words to have discovered a God who has stooped to their condition in coming as the man of Nazareth and who has rescued them from guilt and alienation by his cross and his resurrection. So, let me, let me wrap all this up. Who is God? He is the Trinity. He is the one creator God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And when you believe in him, when you give him your love and your loyalty, like it says in John chapter 3, you will be born all over again. The Spirit will fill you and will link you with Jesus in an intimate way. Listen again to Paul's words about this in our New Testament reading, Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit to fall back into slavery, into fear, but you received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Have you surrendered your love and your loyalty to this God? Not to some vague God. Not to the idea or the concept of a God. Do you believe in Jesus? That he is God? You see, it's possible to be a Christian and not be converted. Many people turn to Christianity for all kinds of reasons. For social reasons. But their hearts are not changed by the power of God. That was the conversation Jesus was having with Nicodemus. To convert to Christ, you must step away from your self-centeredness and your fear. And into a trust of Jesus. When Jesus died for you, he was inviting you into the dance of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, He invites you to join in the joy. 
He's inviting you to begin centering everything in your life on the one who is moving towards you, who is encircling you in his infinite and beautiful love. And if you respond to him, if you trust him, if you repent of your self-centeredness and your sins, you will see that you can draw down on a fresh new power that will enable you to begin to heal, to begin to cross over boundaries that you couldn't cross over before. Have you done this? If you haven't, there are a lot of people in this room that would love to talk with you about it. Let's pray.